news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hey everyone, we just wanted to remind you that we have a giveaway going on. As soon as we reach 100 reviews on the US Apple Store platform, we will open a giveaway where we'll pick three lucky winners and we'll critique 50 pages of your story plus have a 15-minute Zoom session with you to chat about our notes. So please, if you enjoy the podcast, rate and review. Awesome. All right, so let's begin with our first query. Carly and Cecilia, I enjoyed hearing your evaluations of queries on Bianca Murray's podcast. I would appreciate your opinion of my adult comedy caper novel, One in the Hand. It's complete at 80,000 words. Happily ever after, as told by the bad boy. Talbot and Sophia just want to be left alone so they can enjoy their lives together. Should be easy. After all, they only have to pay off the gangster who got burned on some unsecured securities she recommended, avoid his grandfather who's in town to pull another con, and repair the roof before the rain starts. It's a good thing her obnoxious ex-boss owns a $2 million Falcon. Those things have a habit of wandering off if you don't keep a close eye on them. 
I finished in the top 10 of Inc. and Insights 2016 Writing Contest and made the agents round of the 2017 Sun vs. Snow Contest. The late lamented the Quill magazine purchased two of my short stories for publication. I regularly present as part of the Think Tank and Writers Helping Writers series. I'm a former officer of the SF Peninsula branch of the California Writers Club. Thank you for your consideration, Mark Dooley. Carly, what did you think of that? For this one, I thought we should have made sure that the title was in all caps. I find that that stands out a little bit better. I also thought we were missing some comps. You know, I didn't quite understand who was this for, for fans of who. That, for me, just would have been a bit of a signpost in terms of where this book was going. And then we move into the query. It starts off happily ever after, as told by the bad boy. I liked this, but I also felt like it was a bit of a fragment and it just needed to do a little bit more. I don't know if it needed a colon at the end to kind of lead us into where the actual plot of the book is going. But I just thought, again, that could have done a little bit more as a fragment to kind of set us up a little bit for the query. I also don't fully understand how all of these things are connected narratively. So, you know, and again, what are we working towards? So I, I saw, um, okay, we have to pay off this gangster. That part's interesting. But what does that have to do with, you know, the grandfather, the con, the roof repairs, and this $2 million falcon? I honestly had to look up this falcon because I didn't know if this was like a fantasy word. I mean, I'm not into birding and, you know, hawks or falcons. So I didn't quite know what that was. So I had to Google that. So anytime, you know, I have to Google something, it takes us out of the scene. And then I looked it up and it was literally a falcon. So I'm like, okay, it's just a falcon. Yeah. So all of these things, I just wasn't sure how all of this connected. So some of my notes I had in the margins was also, what are we working towards? You know, I found that the Talbot and Sophia want to be left alone so they can enjoy their lives was a very like passive goal. Is it that they want to live alone peacefully or they want to escape? So I thought like an escape would be interesting, but this whole, you know, did they just want to live quietly home alone? You know, that part I didn't quite get. But yeah, so I thought overall, one thing we were missing that I and this kind of is something I'm going to weave into my notes on the pages is a setting in general. Like I didn't know where we were what city, anything really about where we were. And lastly, there's the author bio paragraph. I feel like we're missing a little bit here. We're missing a link to the website. Um, maybe I also like just maybe even a link to a primary social media page. You know, if you're more prominent on Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is, just a quick link to that. And again, coming back to the setting, I would have just liked to know where you live. Again, I don't think anybody needs to spell out, you know, their suburb or, you know, their, their small community if they don't want to, if they don't feel comfortable with that. But generally, even if it's just Northern California, or Southern California. I got the sense we're in California because of the California Writers Club. So just giving us a little bit of a sense of place, I think would have also helped me understand this query a bit better. I not only had to look up what the falcon was, I had to look up the pronunciation of the falcon. And I think everyone listening laughs at me every week because I butcher Spanish words and I butcher French words. And now I'm butchering the, the pronunciation of falcons as well. Cece, what did you think of the query letter? I agree with everything Carly said. I typically also prefer titles in all caps. And, you know, I know it might seem like a small thing, but we read so many of these query letters. And so it's so important to have the, the actual important information stand out. It's the same with word counts, right? Like don't write out the word count as in, you know, write out the words for the numbers, just give us the numbers. It's these small things that really do make a difference. In terms of like the, the main job of a query letter is to get me to be curious about the story. And I'm not quite as curious as I would want to be, because I don't, we don't really have a goal for Talbot and Sophia. It's, you know, echoing Carly's words. It's a passive goal. They just want to be left alone. Like I can appreciate that as, as a human, but 
you know, I'm not sure that I would be invested in spending hours and hours reading a novel where that's the goal. And there seems to be like really high stakes problems going on, right? Obviously, you know, there's a hint that they're going to, you know, steal the Falcon. Also had to Google that. There's stuff going on about like insider trading and I mean, other, other interesting high stakes things. But if you don't attach that to a goal right away, then I guess my question, you know, as a reader, first and foremost is, then why should I care? And I think that I think that that's the author's job, right? Like, and also I don't buy that Talbot and Sophia, all they want is to actually be left alone. I think they're probably more interesting people. So I would just let that shine on your query letter. That would be my advice. All right, Carly, why don't you let us know what you thought of the opening pages? So right away, we are dropped into a scene that is a poker game. And as I kind of alluded to with my notes about the query letter, I also really want to know, even though we are in a poker game, you know, we're we're imagining this in a you know secluded illicit gathering type of situation but i also want to know where are we in the world because a poker game in Cincinnati is different than a poker game in downtown LA. You know, there's just so much that I think we're just leaving off the record here that I think would really just bring some richness to this scene. Another thing that I was confused about is so we're in first person here. So it opens Saturday afternoon. I'm in Mavu's poker game. So, and then we're talking about the Nugent brothers, Vietnamese men. I also, again, I am a white lady, as you all know. I felt like we were introduced to some casual racism here because I wasn't really understanding this whole like Vietnamese men look all, all look alike to him. And then who but who is it that's saying that? I wasn't sure if it was like this frat boy at the table that was thinking that or it is or how if it's in first person, how does the other character know that the frat boy is thinking that? And therefore, I just wasn't sure who is feeling this way. I was just very confused about if we're in first person, how are we in everybody else's heads? And and again, we're introducing some casual racism here. So then I need to know who is feeling that because it matters to me as the reader who is projecting these opinions or who actually has these opinions. So I would just be really clear who we are talking, speaking for in terms of the characters. I also felt like there was in the first paragraph, there was metallics. And I always say, you know, we, we talk about this also with exclamation marks. I, italics to me fa fall into the same character, which is let the writing do the work. Don't italicize things. The italicized word is I'd never do anything like that. So we're supposed to read it like I'd never do anything like that. Like to me, it's just almost comical. So if you had the never, not in italics, it would read, but you know, I'd never do anything like that. And it allows the reader to understand whether it's satire or, or a sense of humor or like this dry sense of humor. Again, so just trusting the reader to kind of come to that and be able to figure out that for themselves instead of giving them the italics. I just find it infantilizes the reader a little bit. So I would avoid that. Next paragraph. So again, I had a lot of questions just about where are we? So it says Ma rents the stock room behind Rubber Soul in Japantown. So again, I'm thinking like, is this LA? Like I'm, I'm really trying to figure this out in my head. And then right after that, we get into Ma encourages local newcomers with ready cash and no law enforcement ties to join in. I felt like we're talking about some very complicated things. So this family is putting themselves at risk by hosting this poker game, again, in a basement or wherever we are with ready cash and no law enforcement ties. And yet this is 
presumably a bit of a humor satire novel, you know, a comedy. And I just felt like we're really disjointed in terms of, I don't know what exactly is going on in this world and who are we speaking for and why? And anyway, so I just had a lot of questions about why we're setting it like this and why we're projecting certain things on characters. Also, somebody who doesn't play poker, it was really hard for me to get into this scene. It was a lot of poker. And just like we talk about fight scenes or sex scenes or anything like that, like this is a scene where what is what are you actually trying to tell us, right? And poker is all about, you know, reading the other people at the table, all of these sort of, you know, whether it's little messages or, you know, our hand motions or whatever, like we're reading people, right? Like poker is all about reading people. And so I felt like we could have done a little bit of better job explaining what we wanted this scene to do because it went on for a very long time. And I just don't think that it needed to do that. I also knew nothing about the I character. I was on page, I don't even know, four when I was thinking like, is this a male character or a female character? Like I didn't even know by that point. And because of the query letter, we could have been Talbot or Sophia. So first I'm like, okay, it's probably Talbot. But then I was like, well, maybe it's Sophia. And like, that would have been an interesting layer to me. So, you know, I could have missed a, a cue here in terms of somebody addressing the character, but I just would have wanted to know a little bit clearer who it was. You know, after that, I didn't really write any notes in the margins. You know, I was starting to get into it. But as I said, it was just a lot of poker. And I just wanted to know what the scene was trying to accomplish. Because this writer clearly has skills. I'm just wondering if like we're putting the skills in the wrong basket in terms of how we're trying to execute this opening scene. Wonderful. Thanks, Carly. Cece, what did you think? Yeah, I was nodding along to everything Carly was saying. My very first note, and you know, as I read these these pages, I, I tend to make notes on the margins. And my very first note is the play-by-play of the of the card game. I just I wouldn't recommend that for the first pages. Typically, card games aren't very interesting to read about unless you're like an aficionado. But like, if you want me to care about the card game, I need to care about the character who's playing the card game, right? Like, I need to be invested um, with their motivation, their sense of urgency their goals, their passions. And, and then the card game needs to be connected to that, whether because they're reading their opponent or whether, or because, you know, they really need to win the card game so they get the money. And we don't have any of that yet. So we got a lot of details about the game, which I think shows the author knows what he's talking about. But at the same time, as a reader, I'm not interested yet. The first pages, like the job is to get us to care about that character, not about setting. Setting is important. It should be there. It's essential, but it's not the most important thing. And then by the time we were on page three, I started thinking about one of my no-nos. Like one of the things that I, if I see in fiction, whether as an agent or a reader, I just, I stop reading and I call it the arrogant win. So the arrogant win is basically when you have a character winning at something, especially if it's first person, but like we're inside this character's head. He's winning at something that he knows he's going to win at something. And that doesn't really matter much to him either way. I strongly advise not having that, especially in your first scenes. You don't want your main character to be engaging in an arrogant win right off the bat because you're not doing any favors in terms of having readers connect with him for better or for worse you know, regardless of what this says about human nature, as humans, we connect to those who are struggling with something, right? Like, I'm not saying they have to be struggling deeply, but there has to be some type of struggle. If everything is super easy to this person, plus they're the smartest person in the room, plus it doesn't even matter to them, right? Like, it's not like they worked really hard to get there or anything. Then it's like, okay, cool, good for you, but you want me to spend hours inside your head? I'm not, I'm not interested in that. So, so if you need that scene where the character is like so smart and the smartest guy, and he's just 
the best, save it for later, you know, introduce us to this main character through a struggle, big or small, does not matter, as long as it matters to the character, that's all that, that, that really matters, and then have him win, maybe that's important to the plot, right, like, have him win later, have us first be invested in his humanity. There's a lot of talk in fiction about whether or not a main character has to be likable. Some people say they do, some people say they don't. What I say is that likable is not the point. The point is vulnerable. We don't notice this, but we like people because they're vulnerable. We like people because they're human, because we connect, because we see their hearts. And yeah, an arrogant win. And and just to be clear, I understand that, you know, if we had read further, we may have learned that the character wasn't actually engaging in an arrogant win. Maybe there was something behind his thoughts that we aren't privy to. But I'm sorry, all you really get is a few pages to hook the reader. Readers are not, they're they are under no obligation to give you more, more than that, right? So you're lucky if you even get people to start reading your novel. So I would recommend starting um, at a place where you really hook someone. Yeah, I always say you have to start the book at the most interesting point in a character's life. And this character was clearly just going through the motions of a normal day in their life, kind of narrating to us a normal day in their life. And that's why I think this writer has some talent because they are able to make that interesting to a certain level. But in terms of hooking an agent and selling a book, like these are two different things. It also depends on the genre. So for example, literary fiction allows for more of a stasis in the beginning. So that allows more delving into a character's normal life, their normal world before this bad thing happens. which means it doesn't have to necessarily begin at the most interesting part, but that's true for literary fiction. Depending on what genre you're writing, you may absolutely have to start at the most interesting part in the the character's life. So genre has to be very clear in your head as well. And this certainly wasn't literary fiction. So something to keep in mind as well in terms of your opening pages. All right, let's move on to our second queries. Dear Ms. Waters and Ms. Lira, based on your interest in emotional, well-paced fiction featuring ethical dilemmas, I'm thrilled to share Carly's Wake, my 87,000-word LGBTQ women's fiction debut that tells the story of a mother fighting to defend her shattered family from an unearthed secret. Think the relational dynamics of the kids are alright meets the domestic disruptions and misgivings of monogamy. Following the death of her cherished wife, Nicole is terrified to parent alone. In the years mothering together, Carly was mama, the one who gave birth, left notes in lunchboxes and kissed away boo-boos, while Nicole watched gratefully from the sidelines. Just as the grieving family is finding some equilibrium, Jay, an old friend of Carly's, invades their still fragile home with his claim that Nicole's seven-year-old son is really his, the result of a one-night stand with Carly eight years ago. At first, Nicole rejects Jay's insane claim. Her little boy came from anonymously donated sperm. Moreover, Carly would never, could never betray her in that way. Undeterred, Jay files a paternity case. Desperately resolute, Nicole searches for clues about Carly, their marriage, and Jay's real motivations. And maybe he's Achilles' heel. But when the legal maxim of biology always triumphs, threatens to give custody to Jay, circumstances spin out of control. Nicole is forced to choose, risk losing her son to his only living biological parent, or escape with the boy and live as fugitive. 
relatives. As a family law attorney, I've witnessed the family court's painful interventions. My essays on parenting have been featured in the Huffington Post and Elephant Journal. I'm a member of Women's Fiction Writers Association. Carly's Wake would sit comfortably next to All Adults Here by Emma Straub and Lucky Boy by Shanti Sekaran and has been read by Sensitivity Readers. Thank you for considering my work, Jenna Branson. I loved this query letter. I thought it was incredibly well written. All I have to say to the author is I wish you had sent this just to me because it's really good and... Yeah, this is this is what I have to say about this letter. It's incredible. It's well written. It's I know I know exactly what the stakes are, who the characters are. I'm curious about what happens. And I'm not gonna get, you know, carried away or anything, but by the time I finished the pages, I was like, what? That's all I get? No, I want to read more. So I loved this. Well, this is a great job. Stacey, guess what? I have a hundred pages in my inbox right now because of course you do. This was <sighs> this was part of the women's fiction writers association pitch event that I attended. So I might share it with you. But yes, I also thought this was very well done. I literally wrote in the margin the words perfect. And uh, I don't really use that word very lightly. The only thing for me, obviously, my name is Carly and this book is spelled the same way as my name. So, you know, anybody get, I, I do, obviously, I, like everybody see queries with my name, which always sometimes makes me smile, sometimes makes me cringe. I'm like, is it a good Carly or a bad Carly? But other than that, I just also want to give a shout out to the Women's Fiction Writers Association because I know they do a lot of work with their membership in terms of working on query letters and helping them with pitches. So great. Uh, Cece, would you like to dive into those opening pages? Absolutely. Like I said, I adored these pages. So jealous Carly gets to have 100 of them. So for the listener, it's it's a hot New England August day and the protagonist, Nicole, is with her son on the back porch and he's asking questions about if the kids at school will ask about Mama. Mama is Carly, um, Nicole's wife, who passed away. The phone rings and it's someone called Jay, who Nicole doesn't like and who asks about Carly's death, listens with a level of compassion to what happened that Nicole does not expect and then says he's coming to visit. And before Nicole can say, like, don't come because it's, it happens in a confusing way, not, not confusing bad, then, you know, Jay hangs up and Nicole realizes realizes that in order to get out of that, she's going to have to call him back. And since she doesn't have his number, she will have to call her sister-in-law, who's the one who gave Jay her number. Um, and she doesn't want to call her sister-in-law. We don't know why yet. But anyway, this is all to like just set the scene. And all I read were five pages, okay? And I already have a strong sense of character. I'm super curious about what's going to happen. The dialogue is interspersed with plenty of inner life that sheds light into the circumstances of the characters, especially Nicole, who's obviously our protagonist, and also adds emotional layers to the character, right? Which is just great for character development. Connecting, like I said before, right? Connecting to the protagonist is the number one thing you want to do in the first pages. And all I can say to this author is, is mission accomplished. You know, as an example of why this worked really well. So like I said, Nicole is chatting with her small son and the phone rings. And instead of just having Nicole answer the phone, James, that's that's her son, James answers the phone. And because we're inside Nicole's head, we get a line where Nicole remembers how Carly taught James to answer the phone and how it instilled in him a sense of being a big boy. And like a less sophisticated writer would have had the phone ring interrupting the conversation on the porch. And that would work. 
that would work. That would not be incorrect. That would not have taken me away from the story. But a very advanced writer, and this is what this person is, worked it into the scene seamlessly by having the child answer the phone, by having Nicole remember how her wife taught their son to answer the phone. And it all just came together. Like, I like to think of this as a very well-written song. And when you listen to a very well-written song, it's almost like they were born connected. They were born together, but they weren't. They were woven together and, you know, by a by a composer, by someone who knows what they're doing. And this is what an author is. An author is like a master composer. And because this scene just feels like it came together organically. I absolutely loved it. It's embarrassing how much I loved it. I kept highlighting so many things that I really enjoyed about it. The one note that I didn't get, and it did not bother me that much at all, but like if I were talking to the author, I would say, so when Nicole is chatting with Jay, we hear her say in her head, like this is something that we're hearing her thoughts. Um, I couldn't stand his thinly disguised self-serving agenda. And this was in response, again, response in her head to him saying, you know, it could be fun to hang out because he just suggested visiting. I was confused about that. Maybe I missed thing, but I didn't know like what agenda he could possibly have. Like it felt like the agenda was just a visit. And I'm like, that's not an agenda. That's just a guy being, I don't know, invasive or something. So, so I don't know, like, I, I think the word agenda tends to perk my ears up because I'm like, oh, an agenda, like a secret thing this person wants, or this other person anticipates that this person wants. So yeah, I, that was, that would be my one note. That was confusing. I had to read it again. I didn't get it. I still don't get it. Do not care though. This is so good. Like, congratulations. Brava. Carly, so what do, what do you have to add to that very effusive feedback? Yeah, you, uh, you're always so lovely with the over the top language. And I was just smiling over here while you were talking. So I, I, yeah, I also, I also really, really loved the pages when Cece was kind of getting at with the composer thing. I just want to echo kind of in my own words, because I feel like the best pages make us feel like we're reading a real book, right? Like Cece and I are obviously doing this podcast with Bianca. We're talking about pages. We're talking about manuscripts, like things that don't live yet in a book. And this is a prime example of something that, you know, I felt like I was in a book. I felt like this was a book, right? And that's what Cece and I are looking for. We're looking for things that we don't have to nip pick that don't bring us out of the story that we feel like again we we were so sad when these five pages end because we just want to be immersed in the moment that's why we do this job right that that's why we're here so one one line i wanted to highlight that i thought was so sophisticated in terms of just what it was accomplishing because there's a lot of books about grief out there you know we can all nod in agreement on that and so what what makes a grief book unique is not necessarily you know what happens in the moment but how everybody feels about that grief right and what that does to the people that are still living you know after after somebody's gone so i just wanted to read out um, one line that i liked the protagonist is talking about the moment that carly died It began with the quick trip to the store that took Carly out onto a slippery street and ended with the children on either side of me in bed, the three of us exhausted from weeping. And I thought that was really lovely. You know, there's so many other ways that the author could have explained the moment that this happened. It could have been a flashback. It could have been a prologue. Like there's so many other ways this could have gone not as well as this. And as I said, just the sophistication of this moment of, you know, love of your life leaves your house, has a car accident and, and you and the kids are in bed crying. Like we get, we get with that feeling feels like because we are put in that moment of being the people on the bed weeping. So I just wanted to say bravo. Um, that was a great line among many other great lines. And and I uh, look forward to delving into this. As I said, it's in my inbox right now. So I, I know where I'm going after this. 
I, I want to ask the question because I feel like this is a conversation we need to be having. So in the query letter, the author wrote that she's had sensitivity readers read this, which makes me think it's not an own voices story. For you as agents, how do you approach this? Is it problematic for you? Is it not problematic so long as there's been sensitivity readers? Let's have a discussion around that. Carly, would you like to begin? Absolutely. I am of the belief that there are so many good things about own voices and highlighting own voices, but own voices also comes with its own problematic spinoff, which is outing people for the sake of publishing, putting an own voices stamp on it. So again, we, ha- we have to you know look at that with both lenses. There has been discourse about own voices being problematic, again, with outing people. So you know people have to be in a place in their life where they feel comfortable being out, you know, safety, personal safety, all of those other things that come with own voices when we're talking about sexual identity. So this person, just because they don't say own voices doesn't mean it's not, but, you know, own voice is a very common thing that people will say to kind of explain that this is a story. It comes from a personal experience, an own experience, um, O-W-N is what we're saying, own voices. So yeah, I love own voices in the sense that, of course, I want to represent people who confidently talk about their experiences from a place of knowledge. I do also believe believe that people can write outside of their own experience. Whenever anybody asks me, you know, whether it's okay or it's not, or resources, there's an amazing article that Alexander Chi wrote for Vulture. I send everybody there. It's about two years old. Just Google it, Alexander Chi, Vulture, Own Voices, or uh, Writing the Other, I think it's called. It's an excellent article, and it goes through three things that the author should think about when they are writing uh, somebody else's voice. Some of the things include, you have to, why, you know, all these sorts of questions that the, that the writer should be asking themselves. So, you know, if anybody wonders about that, that's where I always send them. I send them to my authors, that link, and, and I think it's wonderful. With my mentorship group this week, we were actually talking about own voices and, and how it can be problematic and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, for the sake of catching my attention, I like it when people tell me that it is their own experience. But as you said, the fact that they said been read by sensitivity readers probably alludes to the fact that it's not an own voices story, but I do believe that people can write outside their experience as long as it is done in a sensitive way. Awesome. Cece, have you got anything to add to that? Yeah, I was nodding along to that as well. I, I absolutely think that you know, we're, and when writing fiction, it's important that the emotional authenticity and emotional honesty be present first and for, foremost. And I would also say that there's a lot of reasons why this author, I don't know this person's gender, but why this author may have gotten a sensitivity reader. It may not necessarily even be from the queer angle. It might be the grief angle. There's there's a lot of intersectionality that goes into a storytelling. And sometimes even if it is your own experience, you still want a sensitivity reader, right? So I don't, I wouldn't presume, I would obviously have a conversation with this author about her, like if I were to talk to her, like if I read the whole thing and I and I love it and I chat with her about representation, if I chat with anyone about representation, I want to know what inspired them to write the story. I want to know where they see their career going. And, you know, through these big picture questions, you get a sense of, of what made a person choose certain identities in their main character. And so I think that it's really important that we remember that we are writing to convey emotion first and foremost. That is the job of fiction. We build empathy. We connect connect strangers, perfect strangers who read the same books that I do. And we're connected through that book. And so anyone should write anything they want, first and foremost. However, if you are going to write outside your identity, and if you are a person of privilege who is writing from a marginalized identity, then you have to ask yourself why. 
And I think that article Carly referenced is perfect in that sense. The why matters, the how matters, the when matters, all these things matter. And I think you can tell, like as, as someone, I'm Latina. And when I read a Latina protagonist, that's not written by a Latina person. I find that I can tell, and this is obviously just my perspective, but I can tell when someone did their research and I can tell when someone has being intentional and respectful. And, and I don't mean respectful, probably in the way that most people are thinking. I just mean respectful, like careful, like they're doing it intentionally. They're doing it with meaning. No one can write a story about their own life and have it be 100% their own life, not even memoir. So I think that it's important to be sensitive. I think it's important to be kind. And I think that these things shine through in pages. All right, let's move on to our third query letter. Dear Bianca, Cecilia and Carly, thank you for reviewing my query and pages for Novel X, a psychological thriller examining the lengths a couple will go to for a baby of their own. I'm a fan of the podcast and have been following Cecilia and Carly's careers for a few years now. After three miscarriages, married couple Adam and Angie want nothing more than for Angie to carry her current pregnancy to term. But when Angie stops answering her phone the same day her pregnant best friend goes missing along the Ohio West Virginia border, Adam fears Angie might be involved. In her final months of pregnancy, Angie has been acting erratically. She obsesses over whether she'll be the perfect mother, which her own mother failed at. She spends most weekends at church retreats and doesn't let Adam touch her. While Angie's gone, he finds strange padding and hand-sewn maternity dresses and realizes she's been faking her pregnancy. Adam should be in for the shock of his life when Angie suddenly returns home with a new baby and a dead body in her trunk, but instead he plays good husband and father, leaving Angie suspicious of him. When she finds clues that Adam has been cheating on her with her dead friend and lying about their finances, she wonders whether he didn't trigger the abduction and murder, making her and her friend pawns in his game. Inspired by headlines that largely ignore the male partner's roles in infant abduction, my psychological thriller novel X at 70,000 words, combines the surprise reversals of the silent patient and the dueling personality disorders of you with an ending that makes us question whom we're rooting for and why. I live in Columbus, Ohio with my husband, young triplets and too many pets. With my MA in literature, I taught college writing and high school English for many years. Currently, I'm a feedback editor at 101 Words and Type House Magazine. My work appears in Litro, Columbus Monthly, Brevity, Vida Lit, Twin Pies and many others. My first novel was published in 2008 with the Small Toronto Press with limited distribution. My hope is that Title X will be the first of many novels with the traditional publisher. Please find below the five pages. Thank you for your time. Sincerely, Author X. Carly, would you like to begin with the next query? I thought this was very interesting. It's kind of a, a couple situation, you know, we're not sure who to trust, that kind of thing. And I liked that there's so much domestic suspense out there through just the female POV. And I really liked that we were also being introduced to the a straight marriage, like the, you know, the, the other side of this. And I, I just really liked that we were getting both husband and wife 
sides of this in my notes in the margins. I had things like, ooh, interesting. Why would a husband think that? And then I had, wow. And then I had, you know, I had lots of notes in the margins that I, I was really engaged with this. I felt like this was a good example also of the writer also introducing a little bit of tone and a little bit of voice into a query where it, this is a very hard thing to do. And agents usually say, avoid making a voicey query. This is an example where I think this voicey query worked. Um, it might've been a little bit too voicey for some people, but we start to get a sense of, again, the voice. And, and, and this is something that is a little different. There are comps. So the comps are the silent patient and you. So I thought it was very interesting that the author didn't include any like motherhood types of domestic suspense comps in here. I thought that was a really interesting choice, which said to me, this is much more of a thriller. And the comp of you, the Carolyn Kepnes comp, is a really good comp here, I think, because it speaks to the kind of more psychological part of it. It is a psychological thriller, but in a book where we're talking about miscarriage, marriage, childbirth, things like that, you expect the comps to be more, you know, women's domestic comps. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. So I thought this is a very careful kind of puzzle pieces query of like connecting all the dots for us without having to spell things out with a lot of handholding. Overall, yeah, I, I thought it was um, very well done. I didn't have any significant note. I just thought it was really interesting. And I, I was curious about where it was going to go. Great, Colleen. Cece, what did you think? So I really enjoyed this. I mean, if I had to give if I had to give notes to to this author, I would say the second, third, and fourth paragraphs could probably be condensed into maybe one or two. I, you know, even as I say this, I think this is going to be a huge challenge because there's a lot of plot points that the author covers. And I do think it's important for us to get most of these plot points. It sets the mood and it makes me ask really important questions as a reader. I'm wondering, oh my gosh, like, why did she do this? Like, why did she fake a pregnancy? And so whose baby is this? And okay, so you're telling me because she does tell me um, that there's an ending that will make us question who we're rooting for and why. And I'm like, okay, so hold on. Like I thought initially, I'm always like, let's blame the guy, but then maybe not. You don't know. So, so I'm just, I'm just very curious. And that's the job of a query letter to make me curious. So great job. I do think though, that it could be tighter. And I say this fully realizing that it will be a challenge, but I think it's a challenge that can be done. Also enjoyed the last paragraph about the author. They told us a little bit about their life, something like, you know, having too many pets, which I think is adorable. And I finished this thinking, okay, I really, I'm excited to read these pages. And I'm like, what is this too many pets nonsense? Yes, There is no such thing. No such thing as too many fur babies. I agree. <laughs> Carly, what did you think of the opening pages? So right away, we're going to get into the prologue debate. <laughs> There's a prologue. And if you've read any discourse about how agents feel about prologues, we're all over the map. Cece and I have debated on this podcast how we feel about prologues. I think this is a, cl a clear example of cut the prologue. You know, I'm Welcome to CC's debate on this as well. I think that it was a very intimate voice to be speaking to the reader, but in terms of plot, it doesn't go anywhere. And so you can tell that this is a voicey writer, which is great. I just don't think we need to spend that voiciness on a situation that has no plot. It's just a bit of a scene. Anyway, CC, I'm open to your opinion on that, but I would say we, we cut the prologue. What do you think? I say keep the prologue. I'm um, team keep it. But I would say make it second person. Right now it's first person talking to someone and we don't know who's talking or who they're talking to. And since the whole idea is to keep the sinister vibe of like, we don't know who is the I in these scenes, just take the I away. Make it all second person. And yeah, and I think it just, it just 
it would sound a little bit better. And I think I would dial up the sinister vibes. Like I do agree that if you don't want to dial up the sinister vibes, cut the prologue. But because the whole point of the story based on the query letter is like, we don't know who's actually the bad person, whether it's the husband or the wife. Then I kind of like that we're starting with neither. Otherwise I'm too invested in the first person that, do you know what I'm saying? Like the very first person mm-hmm. who, who I get, whose POV I yeah. get. Yeah, yeah. Because we're going to be biased towards, yeah, whatever character we're introduced to first. Because exactly. we're trying to pick sides. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get it. I think second person would be great because I almost, once I was halfway through the prologue, I thought it might be second person because it's like you hoped, you prayed. Obviously, I think this person talked to themselves, but yeah, I liked as soon as we got to that. So I think Cece's right. I think if it's going to stay, it needs to be second person. And then we get into chapter one and it's entitled Adam. So we know we're in male point of view. And I really liked that we are in the male point of view here. I think, as I said before, I think there's a lot of domestic suspense in the women's point of view. And I think what makes this unique, I think this is psychological suspense, sorry, not domestic suspense, but I think there's a lot in this category in the female POV. So I really liked that um, this was a male POV. And I think also that's where the uh, the silent patient comp comes in. So yes, yeah, so I, I very much enjoyed that tone. I did feel, though, that, you know, we're, we're in a scene where the husband and the wife are distant from each other. You know, we are also in a scene where, you know, there's a woman going missing and the husband's like, is that my wife? You know, anyways, we're doing a little bit of like in the present, a little bit of a flashback. So we're trying, you know, the author's trying to show a little bit of the backstory of, of, of where the marriage is at. So I felt like we could have done a little bit more work on Adam in terms of how he feels about how distant he is to his wife right now. He seems worried, but I wasn't sure like what kind of worry, like worry for himself, worry for the baby, worry for, you know, like worry is just one thing. Like what, what was he worried about? And I just, I felt like in the dialogue, he says, you know, they're going back and forth and he wants to know where she's good. She's going away for the weekend. She's really pregnant. And he wants to know, you know, are you going to call me? How are we going to keep in touch? Why do you keep leaving on the weekends? And so like we get that through the dialogue, but we never get a reflection really of how he feels about that. So I thought, again, I just thought we really need to get into his head a little bit. And then we go back to the scene where um, he's at the bar and he is watching television. He sees this pregnant woman has gone missing. And then he hasn't heard from his wife because she's not there. So he's worried about her, but he's also worried about himself. He has this line, like there's this line that says, but then I read further and I saw the woman found in the pond had been murdered by her husband. Always the goddamn husband. I thought with a chill, I am a husband. You know, that kind of character building I thought was great. There's a bit of self-reflection there. We kind of understand he's maybe not a psychopath because he's worried about it always being the husband. So I thought I thought that was good, but also showed that he was worried about himself, not that he wasn't worried about his wife again. So I just thought we could have done a little bit more work with Adam. And why should he worry? You know, he's pushing his thoughts away a lot. And I felt like we're probably again, this is only five pages. So I feel like page six was probably going to roll into this. But why was he pushing the thoughts away? Like, oh, it can't be my wife. That's not my wife. That's dead. You know, all of that sort of thing. I want to think like, what if that is my wife? You know, is that the next train of thought that's going to come? So again, it could have been on the next page, but I thought this was really interesting. And I really liked that it kind of spun this trope on its head. I, I thought that was a good hook. Right, Cece? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed these pages. I agree. I agree with everything Harley said, particularly about wanting more details about Adam and like how he feels about his wife. And they're, they're going through this really big moment, right? They're about to have a baby. And yet they're not as close as 
as he would have wanted. And we know this because we're inside his head. And he mentions, you know, the fact that she's gone on most weekends because of the church group. And it's, it's not something that she used to do, but at the same time, it gives her purpose. So he likes that. And I, I don't know, like when I, when we were on page, so in page two, um, he mentions that she wasn't like some pregnant women whose faces and ankles swelled and whose backsides expanded to match the middle, which is a hundred percent something that I think a guy would, would think. I, so I, I thought that was very believable. And given that we know she's faking the pregnancy, great detail. I would just weave in emotion, like weave in his thoughts on that. Like maybe he's being super proud that his wife is still absolutely gorgeous, even though she's pregnant, which is something that no man should think, but I know they do. Um, or maybe he's like concerned, like maybe because they've had miscarriages before, maybe he's thinking like, does that mean she's not as healthy? Maybe she should be swollen. Maybe there's a reason why women get swollen. Like I would just want the emotion to be attached to the clues more. I think it's really important to do that in, in a psychological thriller. The clues are everything. And I love psychological thrillers, but I have this thing where it's like, I can usually figure out where it's going and I love to be surprised. So I think that when you insert emotions in the clues, you are, you know, getting two jobs done and supposed to just one. It's character development and building that suspense. So there's also a part where he says he didn't, like he wondered what he, how he'd keep himself busy all weekend. But like he just mentioned that she's gone on most weekends anyway. So I think that he would know how to keep himself busy. And also I just want a main character who knows what he's going to do over the weekend. Even if it's sulk because he loves and misses his wife so much, that is fair. But I don't know, right now he's reading as not quite creepy, but not quite great husband either, which I understand might be intentional. And like Harley said, it's possible that like on page six, this would have made sense. But we're in a middle situation right now that I'm like, I don't know. I, I understand that I'm supposed to be wondering who did this, what exactly happened, who, if anyone, is the like the sociopath or psychopath in, in the story. But I would just have wanted to have more development one way or another, even if that development later it turned out to be like an unreliable narrator situation or 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 a sup- or surprising misleading part of his personality i just wanted more one way or another um either make him a much nicer guy or like a creepier guy i got as i was reading this my lovely wife vibes it's it's a great book i get the author's name because of course i do um samantha downing is that samantha, samantha downing? downing yes 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 um so yeah and it's told through the husband's point of view which which is rare for these books and i think that's interesting i think that's a great hook. And yeah, and I, you know, one thing that worked about my lovely wife is that he was incredibly creepy from the start, like incredibly creepy. And at the same time, this is going to sound so weird, but almost like a cutesy, lovable creepy because he did have like a code, even though he was a horrible, horrible human, there was some type of code, which is kind of like Dexter, right? Like you're doing a really bad thing, but you have a code. And that was like from page one. I remember starting that book and understanding right away that what was going on. So I would just want that to be here, if that makes sense. So if you haven't read that book yet, I would recommend it as research. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that, you know, a lukewarm character or a character we feel lukewarm about, like that was a choice to make him the first POV, right? Instead of the wife, presuming we're going back and forth here. So yeah, I just thought that if if we have to, we pretty much do have to have his POV first, right? Because he has to kind of set up this inciting incident. So yeah, making him less kind of wishy-washy would be definitely step one. Thank you everybody for listening once again. Cece and I look forward to this every week and we also look forward to hearing what you guys think. Be sure to tag us, tell us 
parts of the podcast you like. seems like everybody enjoys when Cece and I fight over manuscripts, so we'll try to do that a little bit more. And also just a reminder about rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple. It matters and it helps us get discovered. So we would love it if you would do that. And it also leads us to our contest. So on the Apple Podcast US site, once we get to 100, we will be doing our giveaway. So help us to get there and uh, we look forward to hearing from you guys. There we go. Just a reminder of a few things that we've got coming up. Carly's teaching a session called How to Write a Nonfiction Proposal That Sells. That's on the 29th of April at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Zoom. Go to her Instagram page for the link in the bio to register. I've got a course coming up called Taking Your Writing to the Next Level. So if you have a first draft of a novel that you are now beginning to revise, this is the course for you. I give you a checklist of all the things you should be looking for, all the things that will help elevate your writing and help capture an agent's attention. Go to my website, biancamaray.com to register there. And if you're in a different time zone, don't worry, the course will be recorded and you will still have access to me in terms of questions. And I'll be critiquing the first five pages of whatever it is you want to send me. CC also has a webinar coming up on the 20th of May at 8 p.m. Eastern Time called From Memories to Memoir, Turning Your Life's Journey into a Book. If you'd like to sign up for that, please go to her Instagram page and you'll find the link in her bio. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. 
But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest first learned about World War II from her grandmother, who served as a Canadian army nurse, fell in love with an American soldier in Belgium, and married him shortly after Victory in Europe Day. She thus grew up hearing stories about the war and has been captivated by the often unsung roles of women in history ever since. A former teacher, she holds a Bachelor of Arts in English from the University of Washington and a Master's in Teaching from Western Washington University. She lives in the Pacific Northwest with her husband and children. Courage, My Love is her first novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Kristen Beck. Kristen, welcome to the show and congratulations on the launch of your debut novel, Courage, My Love. That's right. Yes. And thank you so much for having me on. I love chatting with debut authors. It's such an exciting time in an author's life. Uh, I don't think it was perhaps the best time to launch in terms of COVID. I really, really have felt for debut authors in the past year because things like tours uh, and all kinds of promotional things, you know, have had to be not necessarily cancelled, but publishers have had to be a lot more creative in terms of getting authors out there. But authors perhaps haven't had the full debut author experience that they might have had two years ago. So tell us a bit about that. How has the experience been for you? Well, um, that is all true. It's It hasn't been the, the launch that you dream of when you're an aspiring writer with a big party and family and friends. But I do feel like I've been very lucky. I've, through this process, befriended a lot of amazing authors who have been extremely supportive of me. So I've had a lot of help with other authors talking about my book online and um, sort of helping me wade into this world of being a published author. And just in terms of that, for writers out there who are going to get to this process down the line, how did you forge those friendships before you launched? Was it a case of your publisher put you in touch with them? Did you just find authors who were writing in a similar genre and reach out to them? Were they part of your writing group? How did you build up that network before publishing? Well, I've been very lucky that most of the authors I've come to know well share the same agent as, as I do. So we have have a, a group of historical writers. We all write historical fiction and we all have the same agent and some of us have the same publishers as well. So that it sort of happened organically. We, I actually, right after I sold my book, 
um, went to the Historical Novelist Society Conference, and many of those same authors were there as well. So I had a chance to meet people in person, and and then this group grew to, I think many of them were friends already for a long time, but this group sort of grew out of that experience after the last conference. So I do feel like I've just been extremely lucky in that way. But I think for authors who, or aspiring writers who would like to have a similar connection with authors when they're sort of down this part of the process. Um, I do think going to conferences is a great way to meet other writers. And I have some other writer friends that I met at local conferences years ago. And my top critique partner is somebody that I met, I think in 2015 at the first writers conference that I went to, and it was her first as well. And we still read each other's work from first draft to final draft. And we talk pretty much every day. So it's it's great if you can cultivate friendships with authors. It's it's kind of like having colleagues in this job that can otherwise be quite solitary. That leads me to my next question, which is could you tell us a bit about your journey to publication in terms of when you started writing? I know this is the first book you've published. Is it the first book you wrote? If you could just give us a bit of background to that, the the highs and lows of of that journey. Sure. So I always wanted to be a writer ever since I was very small. That was my um, hope in life. But as life does, um, it took me in some other directions for quite a few years. I became a high school teacher um, out of college and I did write during that time in my life, but I, I tended to write shorter fiction in the evenings and found that it was hard to sustain being a brand new teacher with these dreams of becoming a writer. So I put it on hold for several years. And um, then when we had our second child, I took a leave and then resigned from my teaching job. And so I was home with really small children. And that's when I sort of had this now or never realization that if I was going to pursue becoming a writer, that was the time to do it, even though it was kind of a crazy time to do it because my kids were very small. I had, I think when I started my youngest was maybe two, maybe not quite two. So I I learned to write during all the scraps of time I could find in that phase of life. And I started my first novel during that period. So I, I feel like aspiring writers often talk about struggling to find time. And uh, that was certainly my first challenge with writing was just finding time. And so I became kind of adept at being prepared always to work on the book. Um, so if somebody took a nap, I would get my computer out. Um, I took it to preschool with me so I could write in the parking lot, that kind of thing. And uh, and so I finished my first book that way and was very lucky to sign with my wonderful agent through that book. And we did go out on submission with that book and it didn't find a home with a publisher, which at the time felt quite devastating. But in retrospect, um, I think this is also really good to hear if you're an aspiring writer, because the path to publication can be bumpy. <laughs> and um, in retrospect, I feel like it all worked out really as it should have. I do love that book, but I feel like that, that was my learning book. I learned so much through writing it. In some ways, it was my very best teacher, my very best writing teacher. And so I don't regret that I have that book shelved. And it got me my extraordinary agent, which was just the most lucky thing that could have happened. So then when that book uh, didn't sell, I knew that I wanted to continue writing and try again. And so I wrote my next book, which was an idea that had been really simmering really for a very long time. The book that I wrote takes place in Italy. And when I was in my 20s, I was lucky to live in Italy two different times. So I always wanted to write this book. Uh, so I settled in and did, and and that one sold 
the very next year. Could you tell our listeners who your agent is? Because for many listeners, they do research as to which agents they should query. And if your agent specifically represents historical fiction, it'll be great for our readers to know who your agent is, if that's the genre in which they're working. Sure. My agent is Kevin Lyon, and she does represent a lot of historical fiction. Wonderful. So take a note of that, all of you working on historical fiction. So Kristen, could you tell us a little bit more, just tell us about Courage, My Love, what it's about, a bit of background on that? Sure. So Courage, My Love is about two women who are living in Rome during World War II, and they start the novel out as being very ordinary women. One is a a young woman who's engaged to a medical student, and she is a polio survivor from a small town. And she starts the story not really knowing about her own strength. She doesn't see her own strength and she doesn't. she's not sure what her future can look like other than being married. Um, she has an inkling that maybe she would like to do more than, than just be married to her fiance. And the other character is named Lucia and she's a single mother raising a small child in Rome during the war. And so her life is really concerned with just the day-to-day challenges of mothering, especially in such a tumultuous time. Um, And she comes from a very fascist background, which wasn't unusual because Italy was fascist for almost 22 years leading up to the war. So when 1943 comes and Mussolini is deposed and Italy then switches sides in the war, Italy signed an armistice with the Allies, the Germans occupied central and northern Italy, which caused all of Italy, but my characters in the story as well, to have to make decisions about how they were going to proceed. And they had to think about whether they were going to resist fascism and resist the past that they'd had and um, align with the allies and try to fight for a different kind of a future, or if they were going to continue to sort of go with the flow. And the flow at that time was Nazis were in charge of Rome and the rest of the northern half of the country, and the fascists were trying to regain power. Right. So, I mean, the research that must go into this must be extensive. Could you tell us a bit about that process? And I also know that in your author's notes, you go into more detail about how the women of Italy were such an integral part to the resistance and how the roles of Italian women changed after the war was finished because of the part they played, opportunities really opened up for them and their, their contribution is largely forgotten today. Did you become aware of all these stories when you were living in Italy or did you go and live in Italy because you were already interested in the history and you were aware of all of this before then? How did that tie into your research process? Well, when I went to Italy, I was, when I first went, I was a college student and I had a professor who was very interested in World War II and took us on excursions to see some of the sites associated with the war. And I was very interested in World War II as well, because my grandparents, um, three out of four of my grandparents served overseas in the war. So I'd grown up hearing stories about World War II, especially from my grandma, who was a nurse in the war um, on the front lines. So I had sort of a particular interest in women's roles during that time, and, and then also just in the period in general. And so when I lived in Italy and began to learn about it, it definitely planted a seed. I wouldn't say that I had this particular story planned out during that time because I was, I, it was 
quite a long time ago, <laughs> but uh, but it definitely planted a seed that stuck. I, I was aware that Italy had a very interesting history during World War II and that um, ordinary people had played a, a very big role in fighting back in the resistance. So then when I started to research um, and really dig in, I found stories of ordinary people, um, especially women, who stepped into these incredibly strong and courageous roles in the resistance. And I found that captivating because, you know, Italian women at the time had really been the message that they had been given if you grew up under Mussolini was that you should get married and have a large family and not take a very active role in any other kind of way. And so I, I found that very interesting that women who had been conditioned to have a role primarily at home so readily stepped into these very dangerous and daring roles to fight back against the Nazis and the fascists. It really is fascinating. And in terms of your actual research process, how did you research? Were you watching documentaries? Were you going to libraries? Were you reading newspapers? Were you having firsthand interviews with people who have accounts of these things? What was your particular approach to the research process? And also, this is something that's always fascinating. Did you research everything up front and then begin writing? Or were you writing? And every time you got stuck, then you did more research. Well, I started with a few months of research and that's, um, I'm working on my third book now and that's sort of my pattern. I tend to research for a few months before I even start working on the plot or the book. And sometimes the plot in the book starts to sort of rise up during the research, but I try very hard to focus on the research for a period of time just so that I can be, feel really grounded in the period that I'm writing in. So with this book, I started with, I would say, say maybe two to three months of reading. And I was just reading all the time books about the period in Italy and about the greater war and also accessing things like newspapers and online documents and documentaries, um, kind of all of the above. So I immersed myself in those stories for about three months and then started writing. But I would say that the research continues all the way. I mean, it it continues until you are told that you have to stop working on your book. I, I would research pretty much every day that I wrote. In fact, I'll often write during the day and then take a break. I have school age kids. So, you know, I'll, I'll collect my kids from school and, and be mom for the afternoon and the evening. And then in the evening after everybody's gone to sleep, I'll open up my research books and read about the specific scene I'm planning to write the next day. Even though I've already read that uh, material in my initial research phase, I feel like it's really important for it to be very fresh before I begin to write. So I would say that the research is, is really a daily thing all through the, the writing process. I learned with my first book, which is uh, some people consider it historical fiction. I don't really because it takes place in 1976. It's not like your story that's very clearly historical fiction. But I remember I would get stuck at a point where I was writing a scene in which a young girl 
had her mother's mascara wand and had watched her mother put on makeup. And then I was like, what the hell kind of mascara brand were people wearing then? And then I would dive into research. And then the problem would be that five hours later, I hadn't written a word and I was still down the rabbit hole of cosmetics of the 70s. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I trained myself eventually that when I got stuck to just write, look up mascara and then to keep writing and then to have a day in which I did all the deep dives so that I didn't end up you know, going down that that rabbit hole. I don't know if if you found the same thing or if you were more disciplined than I was. No, very similar. Um, it's and then inevitably you learn everything there is to know about mascara, and then you don't even use it in the book, right? <laughs> I feel like I have lots of tangential knowledge about things that didn't didn't end up in the story. But yes, that does happen. And so what I typically do, I have a separate document that I always have open on my computer. And when I have a couple methods. One is when I have a question, I will just type it into that document and it's kind of a look up later list of questions. Um, And then I also will write something in the story in red if I am not sure about it. So I'll highlight it red or blue or some color that I will notice when I'm going back and finding all those tidbits. Um, And then I can go down the rabbit hole, you know, in the evening or something when I'm not trying to produce new work. That's really smart. I will make a note of that going forward. I remember one day I started on Wikipedia with Nelson Mandela and five hours later doing nothing but following Wikipedia links, I blinked and I was on the page for an amoeba. And (laughs) I could not have told you how I got from Nelson Mandela five hours later to an amoeba, but it it was a very fascinating five hours, but certainly not the most productive that I've ever had as well. In terms of your first book that didn't get published and this book, were there integral differences that you noticed in your process or in terms of the subject matter that made the books different? Because I know that certainly with your first book, you wouldn't be as good a writer. So you're certainly learning the craft while you're writing your first novel. Whereas with your second novel, you've made all those mistakes, you know how to avoid them. So my first book, um, it was a book that was on my mind for a long time. And I look back now and I feel that it was probably Probably too ambitious a book for a first book. It if if I were to do it again, I mean it's how do you know though until you try, right? There was I don't think there was any way for me to know that, but I do think it was too ambitious a book to start with. And I may return to it at some point. Right now I'm comfortable not, but um who knows, maybe, maybe sometime it'll resurface. But I do feel like I really learned so much through writing that book. Um, that was my trial and error book. And I revised it. I mean, I worked on it for, for a long time and revised it heavily. And I think I would say to any writer who has a similar experience, uh, if you have, I, I feel like most writers probably have at least one shelved book. I think sometimes people have a lot of shelved books and I would never feel bad about that because I think those are your learning books and that how else will you learn to be a writer unless you write? So yes. And then as far as how it relates to this book, they're both about women, unsung women in World War II. And so they had that similarity. So I felt equally passionate about 
the book that became Courage, My Love, um, when I started it. And I was so excited to start it because I, I was really excited about the topic and passionate about it. And I'd had that practice with the first book. And so I sort of came to it armed with ideas about what I would do differently and and how to proceed. And then it, it met with success. So I think that writing the first, I think you just kind of have to do it. But maybe if you have something that's like the book of your heart, maybe save it for a little bit later in your writing journey. I couldn't agree with you more. So my first book that I published was the third book I wrote. It was the book that I was always terrified to write. And in fact, the first two books that I wrote that were widely rejected by everyone because they were so awful were really spoofy kind of novels. They were almost kind of Terry Pratchett-esque. And, you know, my first novel was literary fiction and it was dealt with very, very heavy themes. But I put off writing that book because I knew it was going to be really, really tough. So I definitely agree with you there. Uh, really do justice to the story that burns through your soul and that you feel super, super compelled to write. In terms of this book and the research, were there things that you discovered in the research that surprised you that perhaps took the story in a different direction to what you were originally planning? How much of the story was planned out beforehand? And did you absolutely stick to that? Or or were there things that came up that you were just like, oh, this is amazing. I have to somehow include them. Well, I'm definitely a plotter, you know, in the plotter versus pantser um, paradigm. I, I would say that I'm a plotter. I tend to write really detailed outlines at the beginning, but my final product never uh, is identical to my plan. And I would, and, and really tends to be quite different actually. So I started with a pretty solid plan and that plan grew out of those months of research. So I wouldn't say that anything changed dramatically in terms of the sort of the heart of the book. I knew that I wanted to write a story about women who find their strength through resistance during the war. And because that was, I read so many stories like that in my research and was so amazed by the stories of ordinary Italian women who were just extraordinary during World War II. So I knew that that was the angle that I wanted to take. And um, definitely the story evolves as you write. And I, I think that's probably true for anybody. I wonder if there's a writer out there who writes an outline and ends up with a final product that is identical to their original plan. I haven't met one so far. I feel that as you're writing and you get to know your characters, your characters sort of take on a life of their own. And that certainly happened with this book as well. You know, the characters start to sort of speak back to you as you, as you go along and that can impact the direction of the story. I actually wouldn't trust a writer who the story absolutely matched what their outline said, because then I feel like your plot is the most important thing and your characters become these puppets who you manipulate from point A to point B just to fulfill the plot. Whereas, like you say, as you write, you get to know the characters, they get a mind of their own really and I feel like if you're authentic to the characters you'll sometimes deviate you'll let them take you places that feel more authentic as as you get to know them in terms of historical fiction you know you're writing about something that happened so long ago but at the same time I feel like there needs to be something that taps into modern day politics or philosophy or a movement etc because if you're just writing about something that feels like 
just this part of history that people today can't relate to, I don't know that that kind of historical fiction grabs a reader in the same way. What was it about modern day, you know, life that allowed you to tap into these things that were happening in the past? Because it feels to me like you go for kick-ass women characters, strong characters. And is there something about, you know, modern day women that that fascinates you? Or is there a rage perhaps about how women are treated today that drives you in terms of your historical research or, or how you approach that? For sure. I feel like this kind of taps into what I love about historical fiction, because I think that circumstances change, but I don't think people change that much, right? No matter what decade or a century we're living in, we have similar drives and passions and fears. Um, so I think that just the human beings within historical fiction can make a story set in almost any time and place relevant to the reader. And yes, I feel that a few things really related to our current times, you know, we're living in such a complicated time and a divided country. And that was true of Italy in World War II as well. Um, it was it was complicated, and and the country was very divided. Historians call the year um, starting in the summer of 1943 Italy's civil war because people were fighting either on the side of the Allies or on the side of a fascist future. So that that rang true as well. I think we've all experienced divisions over the past um, several years. And then as far as women go. Yes, I as I research women's history, I find that we are still fighting a lot of the same battles that we were fighting a hundred years ago. I'm currently working on a story that takes place in World War One, and some of the characters are suffragists, and some of the things that they, some of their arguments, are surprisingly similar to some of the things that we're still working on now. And I'm inspired by women I know in real life. I'm surrounded by really strong women. I mentioned my my grandma; she's passed away, but she was a frontline nurse in World War II, and she she was right there behind the front lines in tented field hospitals. So after Normandy, just a few days after Normandy, she was there working on behalf of the hospitals. And uh, so her stories have always really inspired me. But then I looked to other women in my life. Um, you know, my mom, who raised three kids and had a full-time career at the same time. She was a, incredibly strong. She still is, but um, was an incredibly strong woman as I grew up. And um, she's an artist as well. And she always held tight to that her whole life. And uh, and then friends that I have who are, I'm in the season of raising children. And I have a lot of friends who are moms of kids and um, they're doing all kinds of things while raising families, you know, and I, and so I, I really look around and feel like women are incredibly brave and strong and probably always have been. And so I love to find those stories in history where I see examples of that in women who have lived through other tumultuous periods. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. 
This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CeceLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CeceLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.